The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Welcome to another episode of They Must Be Destroyed on Site. This is episode 53, it should be, and uh, we're continuing our little look at noir-ish crime films. I'm your host, Lee Russell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel Harper. How are you doing, sir? Uh, doing all right, making it through, getting uh, getting there, watched some Gene Hack movies this week, so yeah, mm-hmm. uh, some, some great uh, classic uh, noirs from the 70s. No complaints, yeah. really. Right on. Sorry, spoilers for what I'm going to say about the films, but yeah, know, they're, both, both. they're both at least above average. You know, I'll just I'll just <laughs> say that. You know. So before we get into that, just want to quickly mention that uh, we now have a Facebook group. After being coerced by uh, Stuart Bulk from Midnight Movie Cowboys several times over and over, I finally relented and made one. Uh, anyone's welcome to join. Just look for They Must Be Destroyed on Site on Facebook, and you can come in and talk movies, give us uh, suggestions for movies you want to see us uh, review, and uh, hopefully everyone will be uh, cordial and not be dicks. Uh, that's basically the only rule is uh, don't be a dick. Um, oh, yeah, and don't spam all of the plays. Don't be an asshole. I will kick you out of the group if you're an asshole, or I'm sure Lee will uh, support mm-hmm. that as well. Although, you know, golden rule, people. Treat people like you'd like to be treated, and that's that's kind of where I land on it. Yeah, and um, Facebook is probably the best possible place for people to leave feedback for us, too, because it, Facebook, everyone has it these days, so it's just more convenient. People, I know people don't necessarily like uh, sending emails or hunting through uh, little message boards and stuff on Facebook. Uh, podcast websites and all that garbage so if, if that ends up being the central hub for people to send us feedback uh, that would be great speaking of feedback our basically our newest member to the board robert hook uh, said he's digging the show he loved the in-depth discussion on fritz lang's m that we did he's tired of hearing comments like yeah that's a classic or great movie we need more serious and in-depth discussion on film uh, there's such a rich history of cinema and i'm glad there are those who discuss it and respect it I certainly enjoy listening and picking up bits of knowledge here and there. Keep up the good work. Uh, thank you very much, sir. He went on to, uh, after you asked him, he went on to suggest some uh, films for us to cover sometime. No guarantees we're going to like get to whatever people suggest, but we're always, I mean, at least for me, I'm always interested in seeing what people want to hear us talk about just because, you know, we can just randomly pick stuff from a hat, you know? Like, yeah. I, mean, or, I mean, basically the way we've been doing this to now is really just like, hey, what do you want to do next week? And then we just start picking up titles. It's really kind of catch as catch can. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always nice to kind of get, well, you guys are listening. What do you want to hear? So, yeah. uh, you know, that, that's just kind of where I landed on that. Hey, tell us what you want to see. So, hell, let's do a Patreon and, like, like whore ourselves out to, you know, the highest <laughs> bidder. Like, hey, put put 50 bucks to this podcast and uh, you can, like, pick a, you can pick a series. We'll do a whole series on My Little Pony's fan fiction, you know, or something. Oh, know? man, you know. 
we both must be thinking on the same wavelength because I was about to mention that uh, as much as we're open to suggestions, we're not going to be doing any brony movies or anything like that. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I feel like I feel like there are certain genres that that I mean, you know, like I would be okay doing like, hey, let's do a couple of like good romantic comedies or something, you know. Mm-hmm. But like, there are certain genres that we're more interested in than others, and I and I don't know that you know the the fans, the audience is really even like. You know, don't don't torture us. You know, like like yeah. pick stuff you'd actually like to see us. You know, listen to us talk about. You know, and if it's and if it is stuff that's kind of outside our wheelhouse, give us a reason. You know, like mm-hmm. if you say, hey, there's this Drew Barrymore movie. I think you guys should really talk about. Like, I'm I'm fine with that. Just justify it slightly. You know. Yeah. So. You know. Uh, don't don't uh, don't just suggest the uh, new Star Wars film just because it's the new Star Wars film. Uh, right. <laughs> I mean, I don't have any problem doing that, but it's also like, well, you know, everybody else is doing that. I don't know. I kind of like I kind of like that we're just picking stuff, you know, old stuff for the most part. So, you know. Mm. But I, I I did like Mr. Hook's uh suggestions though. Uh he I think 2001 was one of them and a Herzog uh retrospective he mentioned which really piqued my interest. So, uh, I think we're definitely might be uh, doing that sometime in the near future. Yeah, Herzog's been on our list for a while and uh you know yeah, I mean, 2001. I mean, God, what do we say about 2001 that hasn't already? Actually, that that the book means a lot to me personally. So I think I could talk quite eloquently about 2001. I have a long history with that property. So um, I was going to say, what are we going to say about 2001? And then I thought, oh, wait, no, actually, I could totally fill an hour on 2001. <laughs> right on. But uh, yeah, uh, Robert, uh, thanks for the suggestions. They are on our Google Doc that we have where we uh, just list possible movies to uh, pick from. So they're in the pool and more likely than not, some of them are going to be picked. I'm also going to try to start writing up little things about the movies I'm watching. Um, I won't promise I do every single one, but so that you can kind of follow along with what I'm watching as I'm watching it and kind of throw them up there and uh, kind of try to get people to comment uh, on that as well. So uh, kind of go from there. That's kind of my kind of my feeling of like, hey, let's just put up some content for people. Hey, this is what I'm watching. See what see what's up, you know. Yeah, right on. All right, so we don't have any other uh, real feedback uh, this week, so uh, we could just move directly into what we've watched in the last little while, so I'll throw that over to you, Daniel. Sure, well, I have one that... <laughs> so, I dug up on Henry's recommendation, okay. on, our, on our good friend Henry's recommendation, I did dig up a French version of Virgin Among the Living Dead. Uh-huh. I totally bought the Blu-ray, right? Like that's that's what I mean by that. I, I oh, went cool. out, I spent the fifteen bucks on the Blu-ray. Whenever we talk about uh, finding movies and stuff, everything that we watch on this uh, show, we've purchased legally. I just want to make that clear to the audience. That's the way we do things here. Um, no, that's not true at all. No. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, I found a copy of French version of Virgin Among the Living Dead. I hate to say it, but Henry's right. <laughs> I, I don't like to say night and day difference, but it's a fucking night and day difference. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Uh, not just because of the... I mean, first of all, I always find... I almost always watch films with subtitles whenever possible. <laughs> um, I just find it's easier for me to follow kind of the plot. I don't miss pieces of dialogue and that sort of thing. Um, so I just like watching it with subtitles in general. It's pretty clear. I did a little bit of reading on this. The English dub is based on the 1981 cut of the film, the, the okay. kind of the, the later cut, and it's a hack job. It's such a fucking hack job. It's not even so much that the dub is different as much as it's kind of bullet pointed 
You know, it's, okay. it's very kind of uh, it misses a lot of the subtlety of the actual dialogue when you actually read it. Um, the performances are really, really terrible in the dub. I mean, we, we both watched it yeah. with the dub. It highlights just how bad it is when you hear the original French, and the original French is like significantly better acting. Um, it makes a difference. Um, not only that, but the score has been changed um, right. in certain uh, sequences. It's a much more kind of haunting, evocative score uh, in, the, in the French version. You get a sense of this kind of uh, encroaching claustrophobia more because there's certain like sound design elements where you like kind of hear stuff through walls and you kind of get a get a better sense of kind of it feels a lot less like random shit is happening as much as like the scene where you see Jess Franco and he's got the the bird and mm-hmm. he's like staring at it. You actually hear as she's kind of walking up to the door, you kind of hear like movement behind the door and you hear a little bit of dialogue of him like talking to the woman about, you know, Oh, I just, you know, I killed the thing or whatever. I mean, so, so it feels a lot more cohesive and uh, it really does make a huge difference. Um, I, I thought, you know, the, the English dub I could barely follow. I was just kind of like, this is just yeah. random and kind of stupid. And um, Henry's Henry's absolutely right about the uh, the French dub being uh, actually a pretty decent little movie. I mean, it still has its problems. Biggest issue I would have is simply that the the lead actress is just not very good. Once you can follow the rest of the film, and once you're you're kind of uh, on board with like the way that the film is actually supposed to be seen, man. She's she's really good at doing that doe-eyed innocent look. She is uh, less good at kind of selling the loneliness and desperation that leads her to actually stay with this family, you know, and kind of okay. reach out for this family. This is probably a DVD I am going to purchase at some point, or Blu-ray. Pardon me, it's going to be. I'm going to probably going to buy this Blu-ray just because I've heard there's a really nice commentary from someone, and then there's an interview with Jess Franco and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah. it sounds like it might actually be worth kind of delving into because it sounds like from reading that there's this kind of really abstract set of symbolism that Franco's using in the film and the stuff that really meant something to him personally, and that that just doesn't come through at all. In the, in the the version yeah. that we saw, and in particular in the English dub, it just it's so hacked to shit that um, it's just kind of pointless. If you're going to watch it, watch it in French, and I think you probably should. Like, it's if you're a fan of Just Franco at all, it's probably worth at least a a, a look see if you can get a hold of it. Cool, right on. Yeah. So yeah, I I wasted another ninety minutes of my life on version Among the Living Dead, uh, but it wasn't a waste. It was actually you know I was kind of expecting to okay I'll watch twenty minutes of this and kind of get okay, it's better but it's not but it really makes a difference. It actually I found it to be a significantly superior experience. So I watched um, a, a few months ago. I talked about a uh, documentary called Restrepo, um, mm-hmm. which is the uh, documentary of uh, soldiers in the Korangal Valley in Afghanistan. Um, and then there's this kind of sequel movie called Coringal, and it's, all, it's streaming on Netflix, and I was kind of like, oh, it's a kind of war documentary. Actually, the reason I kind of picked this up, it's connected to some of the conversation I'm going to have about the conversation later. Mm-hmm. So kind of, well, I'll kind of do that. But I, I did kind of go, oh, yeah, this is, I remember I liked Restrepo, and it was either on my best of last year or it was kind of near my best of last year list. Man, Coringal is so not as nearly as good a film as Restrepo was. Really. It was really disappointing. Um, it, you know, it it does the thing of like putting you in in a kind of you are there kind of aspect um, of this kind of infantry unit in Afghanistan, but it definitely feels a lot like B roll from Restrepo. Um, it, it's it's a lot more kind of like oh, and this is just 
extra footage we had that we you know just didn't fit in the first film. Um, there's a little bit of a framing narrative where the first film really at least tries to kind of get you in the heads of these soldiers, but also kind of shows kind of the impotence of the kind of military machine and shows kind of the larger context, even while kind of embedding you with them. Korengal is a lot more like uncritically rah-rah. You know, there, there's a there's a lot less of a sense of kind of actually trying to get some distance and try to like analyze what's actually going on. And it's a lot more um, kind of like, look at these guys and look at what all they've done and their heroes and that sort of thing. And, you know, I don't have any, any problem with kind of valorizing um, people who have decided to, you know, kind of put their lives on the line for their country yeah. and that sort of thing. I mean, there's a lot, there's a big conversation we can have about that. But when you're, when you're going into this kind of very controversial war and this kind of, and not kind of ask the question of like, why exactly are these guys here? What are they doing? Like at one point, one of the guys wins a medal the the documentarian um asks him you know like how how do you feel like are you and he's like I'm, I'm proud you know i did something we actually did something good and i want a medal for it and that, that's what i'm proud about and i mean i just what did you do like what did you win this like what exactly did you do you killed some guy you know or you helped you you prevented some guy from killing your guys but why like what's the overall purpose and that's what i think the film just completely drops the ball on so i would highly recommend restrepo i think restrepo is really good uh Coringal is uh, i mean it's not terrible but it was definitely not nearly the film and it and it kind of uh, it really does uh lose a lot of that context so um that's kind of where i land on that and then i it, <laughs> while i was watching that i kept going man what we need is an Errol Morris documentary about this because I've been in a little bit of an Errol Morris kick uh, lately. Yeah. And um, there's an Errol Morris film I haven't seen yet called The Unknown Knowns. Um, this is uh, basically, if you've seen The Fog of War, I don't know, you've seen a bunch of the Errol Morris stuff, Lee, or not? Honestly, I can't say if I've seen a lot of it or not. Well, he's made three films now that are kind of about the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. He, he made um, The Fog of War, which he actually interviewed Robert McNamara, who was one of the architects of the Vietnam War during the Kennedy administration. Okay. And that was kind of about, like, he's talking about, like, what it is to go to war, in, you know, in general. Mm -hmm. and kind of drawing some conclusions about Iraq without, like, kind of in the run-up to Iraq without, like, saying this is about Iraq. And then he made Standard Operating Procedure, which is about the abuses at Abu Ghraib and and kind of talks a lot about, you know, the the photographs and why the photographs were taken and that sort of thing. And then he made The Unknown Knowns, and this is an interview with Donald Rumsfeld, who was a complete fucking asshole, Um, one of the (laughs) total douchebag, um, Secretary of Defense. Morris is able to let Rumsfeld talk, and to let Rumsfeld tell the story in his own words and not even really challenge him, but at the same time, through editing and through selection and through uh, reenactment and that sort of thing, um, kind of give us that distance that, that Coringal lacked so much of. It's not quite where I'd say watch these two together because it's totally not like the kind of thing where you should watch them together, but it was definitely a palate cleanser, and that's what I needed after watching Coringal <laughs> was something that was just going to uh, kind of add some perspective back to this uh, whole horrifying quagmire of a war we've uh, found ourselves in in Afghanistan. That was the kind of stuff that I, I watched this week, um, in addition to uh, watching 70s crime films. So, uh, <laughs> um, and I promise I'm going to connect all that to the uh, to the conversation here uh, shortly. So Awesome. I look forward to it. Uh, the only the only thing I really need to mention that I watched was uh, an old Hammer film from 1959. I was perusing Netflix from the UK, and they have The Man Who Could Cheat Death from 1959, starring uh, an actor called uh, Anton Differing. 
You might not know the name, but you'll definitely know the face because he's famous for playing Nazis. Some interest to you, Daniel, he actually played, uh, and to me actually too, because it's one of my favorite doctors, he played a, a Nazi in Silver Nemesis. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, that guy? Yeah. Wow. That was like right, his last cool. role. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, no. Man, Silver Nemesis is terrible. But, uh, <laughs> you know. But yeah, no, that's that's a that's a cool. I'm I'm gonna I, I just put that on my uh, to watch list. Uh, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna check that out. It has a lot of talking in it and not enough action, I would say, for for the most part. Um, but it does have an interesting premise. It's basically this sculptor who has prolonged his life by eating, I guess, the parathyroid glands of young women. Basically, not eating them, yeah, but making that's... a serum out of them. That that's what that's that's the way you keep your youth by eating by eating out young women. That's I mean um you know it it worked for uh, Bathory or whatever her name was drinking bathing in the blood of women. So in the blood, yeah, no, yeah. But it, it's an interesting premise. It sort of mixes mad scientist with uh, sort of gothic kind of horror at the same time to a certain degree, and it's a uh, it's just one of the sort of hammer curiosities that most people don't know about. So it is, it definitely is worth checking out. It's not a terrible movie or anything, but it it is a little little dry, a little dry. But uh, it, it is worth checking out. Cool. Well, it's on my list. I'll I'll try to check that out at some point. Actually, uh, City of the Dead just released a new uh, episode, so expect me to have at least one more Amicus film watched uh, for next week. So oh I yeah, can... then they do the uh, Psychopath. They did the Psychopath. Yep. Yeah, I haven't seen that. I have to. Uh, I have to watch it and then listen to the episode. I have the episode on my MP3 player. I'm actually a couple behind for them because I still haven't watched the Skull, um, and I, oh. I need to listen to that one too. So uh, I'll probably I'll try to I'll try to get both of those watched and uh, talked about for next week. Although uh, I've got I've got a I mean I keep adding more movies to my list. It's ridiculous, like how many movies are on my <laughs> to watch list. Um, uh, I, think this, I think the Skull is on Netflix right now, isn't it? Is it? Maybe um, it's just the maybe it's just the British Netflix. It's possible. I mean, here yeah. in the, I mean, it's totally different in the U.S. We get we yeah. don't get anything good in the United States, man. You know, it's it's only yeah. it's only well, Commonwealth countries that get. You well, know. well, no, I hear all the other um, countries. always say, oh well, our Netflix is shit, and the U.S. has a superior one. But me using just VPNs and going to the different types of Netflix, it's like there's definitely more stuff on the U.S. Netflix, but the variation on some of the other countries, like just the interesting little obscurities that pop up, yeah, definitely makes it worthwhile. Yeah, there's definitely some oddball stuff out there. I mean, you know, you remember, and this is something I actually want to have like a full conversation about at some point, you know, for mm-hmm. this podcast, but you remember back when, like five years ago, when Netflix was kind of the only game in town, and they had giant archives that you could just sit and watch. Like mm-hmm. it, it felt like you could like put in almost any movie that was like at all, you know, kind of available. And if it wasn't there, at least it was kind of like, oh, there's something similar that was like something else that was kind of on my like, oh, I would love to watch that. Yeah. It really feels like it, it that that aspect of the Netflix experience has just gone way downhill. And I mean, it's because these companies, uh, the, the the distribution companies, have started to realize like, hey, we can actually make money streaming this yeah. for ourselves. And and they're starting to like uh, boost their price if Netflix wants it, which I completely understand. But I, you know, I, I feel like I would like to get to the point where I can put the title of a movie into Google, and it can tell me where I can stream this legally. You know what what I have to do? Like it should be like almost instant. I should be able to put in mm-hmm. the skull into Google right now uh, with maybe like a, a for something like the skull like a date. You know, the skull nineteen sixty one or whatever, and it should just tell me. 
oh, if you have Hulu Plus, you can watch this for a dollar ninety nine or whatever. You know, yeah. Some movies you can do that. Sometimes there really is that kind of option. But but I, I want that to be much much easier to 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 figure out what my options are for watching a movie because right now it's just kind of frustrating because I feel like I have to check like five different sites if I'm looking for a particular movie. You know. Yeah, uh, I feel the same way. I mean, I don't necessarily, like, I believe in supporting, like, artists and movies and stuff. I don't like going to Put Locker to find something. Yeah. But if if I have to do it, I'm going to fucking do it. Well, um, here's here's where I, here's where the other place I land on this. Like, I mean, you guys are, like, Netflix has to understand you're competing with free. Mm-hmm. You know? That's always the thing when you're on the internet because you're never going to crack down on it 100%. You've got to make your product so easy to use and so intuitive that I would rather pay you for it than go get it for free. Like that's sort of, um, and I hate that that's kind of where we are on the internet. Like I would, I would much rather pay some service fee or whatever and just have access to the stuff. And I just want these guys to like get their shit together and make it to where I can do that. And I want like, you know, a deep catalog. I don't want like the last 20 movies that were released on, on Blu-ray this year. You know, I don't care about the Avengers too. I want to watch the skull, you know what I mean? You know, and I want like a bunch of that shit. And so that's, we're just kind of in this weird place where I feel like there are more films available than ever before. If you're kind of willing to go into kind of gray market or black market or whatever, you know, you know, pirating and that sort of thing, almost everything is available. If you look for it hard enough, Mm -hmm. But I want it to be like above board. I want it to. I want to actually see these filmmakers get paid for for this stuff, and I'm happy to pay like a monthly fee to have that. And that's yeah. just kind of that's my I mean, rant. Sorry, I, I'm completely aside the point. But like, I, <laughs> see, I keep I'm, thinking about this. So yeah, I'm not sure what movie companies are doing right now, but I mean, there's untapped revenue and resources in those uh, little burn a DVD for you services. Uh, there, there, there's, there's, I think, untapped money in just making those available on a subscription service online. You well, know? if if Warner Brothers is is willing to like basically make you a DVD and ship it to you for ten bucks or whatever, they should they should basically. I mean, even if they like farm it out to somebody, even if Warner mm-hmm. Brothers basically just sells their whole catalog to, you know. Just Amazon give it to Prime even give it to Netflix and skim give it off. To Netflix yeah, and say we want a certain percentage of it. But I mean, if they're if they're willing to burn a DVD, it seems like they've got a digital copy sitting there somewhere. They can serve that digitally. It's it's easily as they can do a DVD of it. Yeah. And I mean, even if it was you know two bucks a movie, like if you want to do like a, a purchase fee or a rental fee or something, and make it like super cheap but easy, or okay, a streaming watch as much as you want. Like, do you know how many like old Warner Brothers movies I would watch if I could just watch them for free on a service? Yeah. You know. Um, and that's kind of, I mean, uh, what the BBC is doing now. They're 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 basically moving to put all their content on their own BBC branded um, streaming service, mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of been the big thing over in the Doctor Who world is that all the the Doctor Who left all the streaming services because the BBC is putting together their own service. I wish that they had made that a little more uh, seamless because you know now it's like there's no way to watch it except you know yeah. to, to do it illegally, but. Um, you know, the, it feels like people are moving that way. I just, it's just frustrating when you know, it just they make it harder. It's it'll be, it'll be a, it'll be a great day for everybody when region blocking and all that shit finally goes by the wayside. 
definitely will. That was that was a nice little lengthy aside we dropped into. Yeah. I hope uh, hey, I hope everyone enjoyed that. Congratulations, audience! You know, yeah. I feel I feel like nobody actually comes here to listen to us talk about the movies that we are supposed to come here and talk about anyway. So you know, uh, they should want to hear about these movies. So let's start off with 1974's The Conversation. This is a world of hidden mics and two-way mirrors. A world where nothing is private. You think we can do this? Later in the week. Harry Call is an expert. The best there is. Let me tell you something about Harry Call. The best bar none. I'll drink to that. Best what? The best bugger on the West Coast. What about me? He can bug anybody, anytime, anywhere. Nobody knows how you did it, though, Harry. Caused a hell of a scandal, too. Look, did you see him? The man with the hearing aid, like Charles. He's been following us all They're not people to him, just voices. Three people were murdered, that's all. He doesn't know them, and they don't know him. Uh, had nothing to do with me. I mean, I just turned in the tapes. Bless me, Father, perhaps then. I've been involved in some work that I think I think will be used to hurt these two young people. <laughs> no way, responsible. I, I'm not responsible. I... You're not supposed to feel anything about it. You're just supposed to do it. Be careful, Harry. You're just supposed to listen, not look, not feel, not care. Conversation. There is nothing private about the conversation. Listen. My name is Harry Call. Can you hear me? 1974, directed and written by Francis Ford Coppola, starring Gene Hackman as Harry Call, John Cazell as Stan, Alan Garfield as Bernie Moran, Frederick Forrest as Mark, Cindy Williams as Anne, Michael Higgins as Paul, Elizabeth Elizabeth McCree as Meredith, Terry Garr as Amy, and Harrison Ford in a bit part as Martin Stett. And uh, I'll let you uh, give a little brief synopsis if you uh, feel like it there, Dan. Uh, I didn't get a chance to write out my uh, typically uh, more uh, involved uh, synopses this week, so I apologize to the audience. But uh, the conversation is the story of Harry Call, played by uh, Gene Hackman, who is uh, basically the best in the biz when it comes to uh, snooping. He's the best bugger in the business, which doesn't have the dirty meaning you might think it does. (laughs) Um, He is uh, a man who is... uh, 
both very technically accomplished. He uh, kind of looks and acts like an accountant. He's a he's a very soft, quiet man, um, a bit of a paunch, uh, but he's a very private man. He's very uh, connected to um, his, his privacy. Uh, at one point, he uh, <laughs> gets onto his landlady for uh, opening his birthday card and knowing when his birthday is. He doesn't have a home phone line, or he pretends not to. He doesn't give out his home phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and he uh, he keeps his own secrets. The film basically follows him as he uh, simultaneously has his, his greatest technical accomplishment in uh, capturing this uh, conversation between two young uh, people. Some of the content of that conversation may not be exactly clear, but um, the audio file certainly is, and that's all that Harry Carroll is about, until it uh, might turn out that uh, some terrible things might happen to these uh, young people. And what follows from that is basically, a uh, at turns, moves into uh, both Harry's obsession uh, with his own privacy and with uh, his uh, technical expertise and with the way the world around Harry uh, responds to that. I really love this film. Every time I watch this, I get more out of it. I, I feel kind of, I feel kind of staggered almost every time I watch this film because there's so much that I, that I sort of pick up every time. Like I watched this twice for the podcast in the last week, and both times I, I picked up more from it. I just love the central performance uh, from Gene Hackman here. This is a guy who was at at the time was sort of at the sort of peak of his career. He he was forty four at this point. He was born in 1930, so yeah, he was 44 at the time this film was made. Before he did this film, he was, you know, he was more how he looks in Night Moves. He, you know, he's very physically fit. Francis Ford Coppola basically had him change him himself physically so much to make him look more like, like you said, an accountant or something like that, right? Well, I, I was gonna, I was gonna say, and, and this is uh, kind of gets into a little bit of my my personal life. My father died last year. It was kind of a weird week for me because uh, my dad, I, I, it kind of struck me. My dad was a big Gene Hackman fan. Not necessarily, I mean, I, I'm sure he liked his 70s work, but I always remember like Hoosiers and Bat 21 and yeah. uh, Crimson Tide. He always loved his, his later stuff. And so this was uh, kind of connecting me to, to my dad a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But also my dad kind of looked a lot like, Gene Hackman did a conversation, you know, like uh, he didn't have the mustache, but I mean, he, he had kind of that, he kind of dressed similarly, he kind of had mm-hmm. the, the tie and the, the rumpled shirt and he kind of had a punch and he kind of stood that way. And it was, it was kind of this, this weird, um, you know, Gene Hackman in this film looks like my dad did when I was growing up, you know? So uh, it, it uh, you know, my, and my dad was certainly no um, no um, action hero. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I feel like it's got yeah, it kind of looks like my dad, my kind of you know boring uh, baby photographer father. That was what my dad did uh, during his career. Yeah. You know, he took to studio portraits, and um, you know he was pretty good at it. But um, never set the world on fire, you know. Sorry to the memory of my father, but you know he was he was a small man, and that's who Harry Call is in this film. Mm-hmm. He's a, he's actually a very small man uh, in this film. Um, I think that's the interesting thing about this character is, although he is considered by his peers to be the best bugger on you know before he moved to the West Coast, the East Coast, or whatever. But well, uh, what's his name? Munson? Is it Munson? Is that Moran? I guess Bernie Moran. Moran. Yeah, yeah, Bernie Moran. Moran. Yeah, Moran, uh, you know, keeps wanting. Oh no, no, you're the best on the West Coast. I'm the best on the on the East Coast. Yeah. And uh, you know, hey, 
Detroit is not on the East Coast. <laughs> Detroit is on the third coast. I'm a Michigander. We know these things. Um, but also, like, Moran is in no way near, anywhere near as good as Harry Call. So uh, I just he's, wanted to yeah, – yeah, I mean, you know, he's basically the best in the world. Like, I mean, I, I think that I think that we can kind of establish that. I mean, the, the anger that Moran has towards Harry when Harry won't tell him how he did that certain thing. It's just palpable, and it just shows how good this guy is at what he does. You know, mm. but at the same time, he's absolutely terrible about keeping his own privacy intact. This is this is a guy who, like you said, his landlady knows his phone number, has a key yeah. to his room, knows mm-hmm. when his birthday is. The, his girlfriend, which is essentially a, mist- a kept mistress of his, uh, that he pays for her apartment and everything, she knows when whenever he's coming. She's watched him. And 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 seen him doing things that he was trying to hide. This is a guy who, uh, for all his technical proficiency in his in his job, incredibly bad at keeping his own privacy to to almost every degree. Well, I I, I agree with that, but I, I think that you can view it as like he's just bad at it, or it's just impossible to do so. And and I feel like well, that I think that how you view that question kind of informs how you view the film. Mm-hmm. Um, because to me, it's it's kind of like he is this good. I mean, he is he is really fucking good at what he does. And the point that not even Harry Call can really protect his own secrets from the rest yeah. of the world points out how interconnected we all are, and how you know essentially this is this is the world we live in. In this way that, like in seventy four, I have some thoughts about kind of what this means sociologically, but certainly in like twenty sixteen. You know, with the internet and Facebook and cell phones and, you know, cryptography and, you know, we, we, we live in this world so much more. And I mean, we basically just pretend we have privacy at this point, mm-hmm. but you don't. Like if somebody wants to, you don't have privacy at all anymore. I don't, I don't care how much privacy, how much cryptography you think you have on your, on your computer or whatever. You are, you are not as secret as you think you are. It just doesn't exist. You, and, you essentially, um, you have to live out in the woods. At, at yeah, I mean, point. even living in the woods. I mean, if somebody really wants to know, I mean, yeah, you know, spy satellites and Google Earth and, and yeah. all these sorts of things. I mean, you're you are not safe from you know this this invasion. And that's a question. I mean, the technology exists. The technology can do this. The technology can take your privacy from you. And I think that the question that we have to ask, and I think that the question that the conversation kind of doesn't necessarily ask, but I uh, you know I kind of we'll get into this, you know, it asks like, should we, should we be doing these things? You know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's the technology exists and the technology is kind of morally neutral. You can use the technology to do all kinds of things that are, that are, you know, you can use the technology that allows you to, uh, to sniff out uh, this conversation. You can use it to shoot films and you can use it to, to, for all kinds of perfectly benign purposes. The, the, the question is, well, how are we actually using it? And that's a question of human nature, not of, technology or, or whatever and um i think that's a that point that i, ke- I kind of kept coming back to um with this and again i will connect that to the uh to Coringal, uh, here in a second but um, <laughs> i'm wondering i'm wondering how you feel about about that question like do you think the film is kind of saying that no one could protect their privacy or do you think the film is just saying harry is just kind of bad at it oh no i th- i th- i think your point that no one can protect your privacy is definitely apt i think I think the big thing here, and this is a film that follows Harry's point of view exclusively. Like there, there is nobody else's point of view in this film really. So the audience is following Harry and the audience sees what Harry sees and you might interpret it differently, but you see what, how he interprets things. 
and I think Harry is kind of fooling himself. Like, I think he believes that he can protect his privacy. The irony, of course, is that he's in the business all about uh, invading other people's privacy, and he can't protect his own, even though he believes he can. It's, think- it's almost a little bit on the nose, right? Like, I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's a little bit, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, this isn't a criticism, but it, it's very much that kind of surface level, oh, we've got this guy who's kind of a, a, a master listener on other people's conversations, and so therefore he's completely paranoid about other people listening. I mean, it feels like this very kind of obvious thing, but it's so inhabited by Hackman and it's so um, built around like the cinematography and the the, the direction. Mm-hmm. Harry lives and works in a cage. Like he literally yeah. lives and works in, in this cage in the middle of the warehouse. Like he's terrified of people being able to encroach upon him. I mean, I'm almost surprised he has a landlady. I mean, I'm surprised he doesn't own his own property. It's kind of... Um, well, uh, actually, f- funny you mentioned that. Original, Originally in the, in the script, he was supposed to be the landlord of his building. Oh, well, that... And, and that, his landlady was supposed to be his tenant, but they rewrote it. Yeah, that's... I mean, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Harry, I think the thing here is that Harry is a freelancer, right? Like, he's not... He is not tied to any agency, really. He he's a freelancer, so he's always looking over his own shoulder all the time. Like, I mean, you know, he he has to have work, but he doesn't trust anyone he works for. They, they value his his professionalism. They value his you know him not saying anything <laughs> and just going about on his business. Well, he doesn't he doesn't care about the content, and I mean, mm-hmm. I think that that's the you know like you see this all the time in kind of technical people, people who have jobs that, you know, like like it's not my job to know what they're saying and to, and to care about the content of the conversation. My job is to know how to set the microphones and how to drill in and get in and be secret and, and actually capture this. My, my job is to make sure other people can hear this clearly. And we, like, like let's, let's, let's take this out of Harry Call. We all do this, you know, mm-hmm. in, in your job, in my job, in, in everything we do. You know, we... You know, I do my little piece. I do it well. I do, you know, and I don't think about kind of the broader social implications of what I'm doing, you know? I think it, I mean, and that's kind of where I say, I mean, it's a criticism not of, you know, Harry specifically, although, you know, we are kind of all like Harry. We all kind of do this, you Mm -hmm. know, in our our day-to-day life and in our work and our play and our relationships we have with other people. We all, like, make decisions about, like, I, you know, I'm going to just ignore the other stuff that's going on in the world around me. My favorite uh, example that I like to use, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a smartphone, if you've got a, a touchscreen, you know, device of some kind, uh, that device is made with, uh, you know, part of that is, is using rare earth elements. Uh, rare earth elements are, um, you don't have to know what those are, but they're um, mined in like these horrifying like mines in, in Africa and China. Mm-hmm where people are dying so that you can have a cheap electronic device. That's just, that's just making the, that's just for, uh, you know, a, a, a microgram of some, you know, weird element that's used for this particular, you know, resistance that it needs in order to, you know, do your phone. Again, that, that's, that's off topic, but I, I mean, it is like connected right back to that whole, mm-hmm. you know, Harry doesn't care. And we all don't, we all kind of run into that. We don't, we don't care about the, the, the broader thing. And well, are we all kind of like Harry? You know, what do you think? Yeah, well, I think I think uh, part of it is that Harry has convinced himself for the longest time that he doesn't care, but he really does because he he is uh, he's presented as a uh, Catholic and one of those Catholics where he's always guilty of something. He he's not the sort of Catholic that necessarily finds any solace in making confession. He just it's just a part of his life. 
constantly to make confession right. because it's hinted that in the past, uh, as a result of his job, he got two people killed, a woman and a child. And here he starts to feel like that might be happening again when he hears the conversation uh, between these two young people in the park that they were scoping out. I have a question for you because this is something I picked. I think there is even something else I picked up on here. I don't know if um, it's just me or not, but I kind of feel like he's maybe falling in love with the woman in the park to a certain degree. Because it seems like he, it seems like he has a bit of a direct obsession with her more than anything else. And, I mean, he even has a dream about her specifically. I, I could, I could read that. I mean, certainly. Um, I mean, I don't think it's explicit. I think it's subtext. I, I think that mm-hmm. it, it's certainly something you can read into the film. I don't, I don't have a, you know, I don't have an issue with that reading at all. You're right that he does have the dream about about the woman. I don't know that it's like a, a kind of romantic or sexual thing as, as much as it's a uh, kind of a masculine, I need to be the protector. Like somebody's going to kill this woman. I mean, even though they're, you know, somebody's going to kill both of them, it's kind of what he believes. But I mean, there is this kind of like desire to protect the woman, you know, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't know that it has to go any deeper than that. Um, but certainly, I mean, if you're, I mean, one of the issues that you run into with people who do this for a living is they they become enamored with the people they follow, and they yeah. become, you know, they, they get, you know, that, they, they, that start was... at, they start looking at girls' tits. I mean, that's, I mean, let's be honest, that's yeah. what you know, bored guys with security cameras, that's what they do. Yeah, you know? I mean, that that's sort of like I wasn't I wasn't thinking necessarily it was super deep, like a, a real affection or love, but I, I felt like there was some sort of shades of that sort of particular yeah, yeah. phenomenon. I mean, right? he he, um, he runs under her in the elevator at the mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he's kind of looking at her and he, he kind of, you know, he you do get a sense of his performance that he's that, that there is this I don't want to say intimacy, but there's this uh, tenderness, you know, this kind of. A distance that he cannot bridge but at the same time you know that there is this sense of like this that feeling for her specifically might be part of the thing that's helping him to push him to some of the decisions he makes later in the film so yeah, uh, yeah I, I i i get that reading out I, I didn't read it that way on on my on my viewing but i i, I buy it yeah it was it was only after watching it a couple times that i sure. I, I i sort of picked up on that but uh yeah all right Probably my favorite sequence in the film is towards the uh, the middle, uh, the kind of extended, uh, kind of two two big scenes, two big set pieces. The uh, uh, the the trade show that he goes yeah. to, where he where he uh, kind of runs into Moran, and uh, you know, kind of the the uh, extended bit there, and then uh, he brings everybody back to his uh, domain and lets mm-hmm. lets people in. And uh, the interactions he has with the with the various the, the kind of cast of characters. I mean, it's a uh, it's a good. I don't know, maybe a third of the film. You know, yeah, between those two sequences, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good middle third, forty yeah. minutes or so. You know, um, and I hate you know saying this forty minutes. This third of the film is my favorite bit of the film, but it, it's such <laughs> richly detailed character work, and it's such uh, richly detailed work about like this world that this guy inhabits, and you get such a sense like that you've got the, uh, the the guy who's making the uh, the camera the. Uh, the, the kind of no-name inventor guy who's, who's designed this new system. And uh, he's like, oh, my God, if, if Harry Call is using it, all you had to do is, like, if I could just get a picture of yeah. you, like, holding it, and I can, like, advertise it. I mean, you can have one for free, and then you, you get a sense of, like, how well-respected this guy is in the community and how he doesn't want any of it. He doesn't, he doesn't yeah. want this. 
And Moran's kind of the opposite. Like he's he's not a technical guy. He's not like he doesn't. I mean, he's he's got some basic technical knowledge. He's not he's not bad at his job. I think he, he kind of gets a sense like he's he's a competent workman kind of guy. He's, but he's, he's a, a flip flame sh- artist. You yeah, know? He's, he's a he's a shifty used car salesman. Is what yeah, he is, right? exactly. And um, that the 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 kind of conflict between these two ideologies is is fascinating. Um, and then of course you know he pays the whore, you know, mm-hmm. like, I, which is, it's such a, a haunting sequence for me, you know, the, the relationship that Harry, this very small, very short relationship that he, that he gets into with this model, the, the, the kind of the, the, the uh, booth bunny um, mm-hmm. woman, I, I'm sure she has a name, I, I didn't uh, catch it, I don't have the list in front of me, but, um, I think that's Meredith, I think that was Meredith, the one. Okay. Well, well, we'll say Meredith then, I, yeah. I might have the, I might have the wrong name, but, um, he there is he does get a sense of tenderness towards her. He does get a sense of like yeah. I think he kinda knows what's going on. He knows that he's being played to some degree, but he's he's kind of reaching out for that connection. This man who is like mm-hmm. in so many ways he's trying to protect his privacy. But then when his uh, when his partner leaves he kinda has this like, well if I have to let people in, I need to let people in and he's and then he and then he gets kind of fucked over because of it. Because of kind of the way that ends. Um, I think it's uh, it's it's such a it's such a human moment. It's such a human kind of sequence. It, it feels very real to me. And, you know, it doesn't. Um, there's so much in this film that feels kind of larger than life, or feels kind of uh, surreal, especially when we get to the end. But but this is so richly realized. I thought it was uh, just just uh, um, moving. It, it, it was very very effective for me. Yeah. Well, that, I think that's probably the most um, effective sort of part of the film to show just how socially awkward he really is. Like, he's just, he is so guarded and so far removed from people that it, it's it's at the point where he doesn't necessarily know how to interact with people anymore on a, on a personal level. It, almost all of his interactions are professional more than anything else. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's all he needs. I mean, I think that's that's what he feels like this is what I mean in my life. And then I've got this, this girl on the side that I, you know, put her up in this hotel room and, you know, I get, I get that and he taken care of, but he's, he treats it almost like a financial transaction, you know, yeah. and, and almost like a, you know, I give you one thing, you give me something else, you give me something I need. And that's as far as it goes. Like that's, that's the end of it for him. It, it is isolating. It is, it's such isolate, you know, this, this man who has this uh, ability to reach into other people's lives and pull, information out um is himself uh he tries to isolate himself and fails but you know yeah well well i mean perfect uh, perfect example there his his mistress she actually has genuine affection for him and actually yeah. kind of loves him and when she basically says i want more he runs away like he ends the relationship right there like he he yeah. tails and run what do you think of the cause uh, if there's if there, if i have an issue with the film and I, I mean, it, it, it is a very, very, very good film. I mean, it, this is this is on my short list for best of the best of the year, obviously. Because um, uh, I think I said this before we started recording. Um, this is actually the first time I've seen this film all the way through. I, I kind of knew kind of what the film was, but had not actually sat down and watched it all the way through. So, um, and that's true of Night Moves as well. So, uh, you know, both of these films are, are are contenders for best of the year. If there, if I do have a criticism, it's uh, that I think that the uh, move towards like straight out paranoid fantasy and feels slightly unearned to me 
and by which I mean, you know, kind of the uh, the searching of the hotel room, the mm-hmm. blood that comes up. I mean, whether you want to see that as a real or a dream sequence is, is definitely for the mind of the viewer. I see it as a dream sequence. I don't I don't see that as, yeah. as real. I think that, you know, where the film kind of ends up, particularly the, when he starts tearing up the floorboards and that sort of thing. I mean, it, I, I get kind of where we're going on this. Um, I feel like it's, again, just a little bit on the nose for me. Mm-hmm. I feel like it. it's a little bit like I, I wish that there had been a slightly more interesting place to take it than look at him in the ruins of his life, kind of, you know, hoisting his own petard, you know, sort of like thing. I, I mean, I feel like it's uh, it's making the kind of, you know, the very obvious kind of character moment, which I feel like the, the earlier stuff was so subtle and well realized. Um, and it's not that this is bad, but I, I do, I just, I wish it had found a slightly more, a nuanced way of kind of approaching some of these ideas. Um, and I don't know how you feel about that. I can definitely see where someone would say it, it does become a bit on the nose in, in the final uh, third of the film. For me, I bought into the sort of paranoia kind of thing because I think it stems mostly from his guilt. I mean, the, this is a guy who is pushed to the brink. He feels like he's being watched all the time, which he is essentially. And he feels extreme guilt for the possibility that he might be uh, getting two more people killed, like he got two people killed before. I know he sort of tries to justify it, like he, he definitely has sort of slight delusions here and there, where he sees, like he sees the the events of the eventual murder in in little flashes as he's looking around the apartment, like this is this is what's going to happen if I don't prevent this. I actually think the toilet scene was real i actually buy that as real um i don't know i i I bought that part as real i bought the flashes of him seeing like the the murders and stuff i i thought that was imagined in his mind um i i I buy the i i mean i I, i'm agnostic on the question of whether the the toilet stuff is real or Mm -hmm. or you know fantasy you know kind of paranoid fantasy i kind of for me it makes it just kind of makes more sense thematically if it if it is just kind of in his head because i do agree with you that the later stuff is is probably also in his head i don't think that like he doesn't know really what happened and that's Mm -hmm. kind of the point is like he doesn't you know the whole point of the conversation and this we're going to talk about this a lot more when we get to night moves (laughs) but the whole point about the conversation is uh what you think you see is not necessarily what you see yeah, um, and, and when you think you hear, like it's he has the ability to bring out this information, and he can give you this crystal clear audio of like what they said, but what is meant by what they said, yeah, is it's still the, a matter of interpretation. So you still have to bring your own thing to it. This is what this film does so well, though, is that again, like I said before, it is definitely from his perspective. You are seeing his perspective, your his point of view directly. Every time he listens to that audio, and by the way, they, they actually recorded that audio differently with different inflections on the words on different occasions that he listens to it. So he is hearing it differently at different times, and you're hearing what he's hearing. So you're essentially following what he is interpreting from the audio. And, and, th- and that is, of course, the biggest problem is that what he interprets is what actually he he gets it wrong essentially right um and i i can see that like i can see him spiral spiraling into paranoia because of it i i i bought it i i i I, I buy it i don't it's not that i don't buy it i guess i just like it it was the less interesting route for me like it was yeah like yeah okay you know 
I mean, it, it is it is an obvious an obvious ending. I mean, but that's also like you know we're kind of looking at it forty years later. I'm not going to say the the ending is necessarily necessarily the smartest way they could have went with it. It's it's a very kind of obvious ending. You know, it's, it's one of several probably obvious endings for this. But I still liked it. I liked that he tore his entire apartment apart, and then you're still left wondering where the bug actually is. Apparently, uh, Coppola didn't even come to a decision where the bug actually was. I'm, I'm guessing it's in the saxophone somewhere. Uh, it, it could be in the saxophone, or it could be... I mean, you know, for for me, it's like, you know, you you can never find everything. You know, mm-hmm. like, if the, if they want to hide it... I mean, we see in the film, like, uh, you know, Harry Cawley, he sets up, like, basically sniper scopes from, like, hundreds of feet away mm-hmm, with a microphone. Yeah. It could be shotgun, in, like, a, shotgun mics, it could be yeah. next door. It could be anywhere. Like, there's, like, that, and that's and that's kind of where I land on. And that's, like, almost literally the very first shot of the film, is or the second or third shot of the film, because it starts off in that big, uh, you know, kind of slow zoom in sort of thing. Yeah. You know, there's no reason that bug has to be anywhere close to this guy. Like, it, it could very easily be very far away, or there could be multiple bugs. Like, we have no, like, and, and I think that's kind of where, where I kind of land on the, like, there, it's, you know, Harry might be bad at what he does, but, or in, in protecting himself, but there's, you know, like, at some point, like, he can't. Like, there's yeah. just, you know, like, you can only build a bubble so, so big and so thick. This film, uh, you know, pretty much uh, when this film was released in '74, yeah, this is kind of the height of Watergate, and, you know, sort of mm-hmm. that, that sort of uh, so uh, taping and, and you know, kind of audio surveillance and stuff was on people's minds. But it was written, uh, you know, kind of conceived in the mid '60s, mm-hmm. and uh, for me, I uh, connect this much more clearly with uh, this sort of uh, mid '60s James Bond sort of idea. Yeah. Um, where where Harry Call is is almost a response to the to the kind of spy you know hero gadget guy you know that the James Bond kind of was in the early days and all the not necessarily even James Bond but all the James Bond ripoffs you know you think uh, all the all the all the terrible spy thrillers that were out there and the the kind of a sixties uh, you know Kennedy uh, adventurism and and sort of the the way that he uh, approached his uh, foreign policy. And that was what connected me into, you know, the kind of military technology and the kind of, you know, stuff that I was uh, was mentioning earlier. And the the kind of idea of, like, we have, like, the, the run-up to the war in Iraq. You know, we had this intelligence. You know, we had this huge intelligence apparatus that was telling us things and that was giving us information. But ultimately, it's it's being interpreted through this very particular lens, and we're getting the wrong answer. Iraq had weapons of mass destruction which you can say was a failure of intelligence, and you can say it was a failure of, like, the politics informed the way the intelligence was uh, interp- in- interpreted or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that was kind of where my, my head started going. Um, I also started thinking about the drone program. Um, because you think about, like, the, the guys who operate those drones, the men and women who operate the uh, the drones, they basically have, like, nine-to-five jobs sitting in, in, a, in an office, like, you know, operating what's essentially a, yeah. a video game. Uh, for for like an eight hour, ten hour, twelve hour shift, but they talk about how bored they are. Like they they talk about like like and uh, they talk about like there are a lot of these guys. I, I read a piece um the other day. They're talking about like how they're getting PTSD from just watching people that they care about because they've been sitting and watching them on drones and get like it shot at and shit, and they can't do anything about yeah. it because drones are another are another thing that you know like it starts off and it's in uh. It's out. It's out in Afghanistan and Iraq and Pakistan and shit now. But you know what's going to in ten years? They're going to be everywhere, and this is this is going to be 
something that we're going to have to deal with here in, in North America, you know, mm-hmm. no question. And it is like one of those things, like there's nothing morally reprehensible about a drone. You know, it's just, a, it's just a little flying robot, but like what it's used for and yeah. the intent that it's, that it's put towards is totally about, is totally a question of, of like our moral choice and the, the choice that the technology gives us. And uh, that's kind of how I feel about surveillance in general. And I think that, that was kind of where I started thinking about with the film. And, and then when it kind of um, becomes about like Harry's paranoia and about like him kind of uh, falling into this, this trap for me, it was definitely just sort of like, I, I thought there was a more, that, that kind of more interesting kind of bigger picture direction it could have gone in. And so that's, that's maybe kind of the genesis of my, not even criticism of the film because it's not really meant to be a criticism of the film. It's really just more like, Oh, I, I kind of wanted it to do something else, but um, yeah, no, I can see that. I will say I do, uh, I do feel like um, at the very end, though, it feels like uh, Harry Call sort of is at peace with his situation to a certain degree. Like he's sitting there playing a saxophone. That's pretty much the only thing that centers him throughout the whole film. Well, what else can you do? Like yeah. he's ripped up everything. I mean, he's literally. You see him destroy the the Virgin Mary. Like I mean, mm-hmm. it's one thing that it, that he did not want to destroy. He destroys that Virgin Mary. And he still gets nowhere in terms of trying to find the microphone. I mean, it's a, it's a fitting metaphor for he's destroyed everything in his life. Yeah, he he has nothing at this point. So, if I've got nothing, who do I care? What do I care if people are listening at this point? You know. And so yeah. he's just like, okay, I guess I am a murderer or accessory to murder. People are listening, and my life is shit. And uh, well, what else? What else are you gonna do? I'll just yeah. sit play my my saxophone, and you know, that's that's where he ends. Yeah. Uh, so the budget for this was 1.6 million estimated, and in the U.S. at least it grossed uh, 4.4 million. So had a pretty good return for its day. Interesting note, and I think this is something a lot of people kind of who are familiar with the film go to. Uh, Hackman later played a former NSA agent who is a surveillance expert in uh, the Will Smith film Enemy of the State from '98. Uh, Yep, and and they they used actually they used um to show images of his younger self. They actually just took images from this film to use it, like on his ID <laughs> and stuff. And I some, haven't I haven't seen that movie in forever. I need to, I need to go back and rewatch it now that I've uh, watched this uh, recently. And there's definitely some people who go, oh, uh, you know, kind of a nod nod wink wink. This is this is Harry Call. This is the uh, this is the end result of years of paranoia after the seventies. You know. Uh, this is where that character might have gone uh, if if he if he lived on. This is uh, apparently Coppola's favorite of his movies. Um, Gene Hackman actually learned to play the saxophone for this film, and you, <laughs> and you can definitely tell he's kind of an amateur while you're watching him play. Like, but but I mean, the character is supposed to be an amateur. I mean, you know, like it's not like it's not supposed to be. Oh, I'm a professional saxophone player. It's like I'm a dude who likes to sit and you know play the saxophone alongside my my jazz records. It's it's like such the like dorkiest hobby ever you know what i mean? like it it fits this character so well because it's so like not like something you it's so not james bond if that makes yeah. sense well you know, if, also if, if, it's if you, go ahead yeah I was just, i'm sorry i was just gonna say it's kind of neat that this is a guy who works with sound all the time and at the beginning they make a they make a, no, a sort of point of how he's how his job is essentially taking little bits of sound that he picks from different parts and putting it all together into one package mm-hmm. He's actually kind of trying to do that with his jazz records. He's trying to complete them. He's trying to put sound into them that he thinks should be in there. I thought that was kind of neat. I like that. Um, <laughs> Did you, since, since you and I, and I'll, uh, this is inside baseball, but since you and I are both like podcast producers, you know, like, did you, uh, 
did you have a moment when you're like watching him, uh, like you know, doing the like recordings and everything, and like setting up? Did you did you kind of go like, man, Audacity makes this so much easier? Mm. <laughs> I, I gotta but say, I wish he I... has to have this little box that he plugs it into, and he can like remove the the sound of the you know the the band or whatever. And I'm like, I got a piece of software that does that for me. So yeah, and it's cool. He actually invents all of his own stuff. Like he builds yep. all of his own machines too. That's how that's how uh, closed and guarded he is. Harrison Ford's bit part um, as Martin Stett. Apparently, apparently, I didn't pick up on it, but apparently, Harrison Ford decided to play this character as gay. I, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't pick up on that, but apparently, that that got him a bigger part in the in the film. Coppola was impressed with him, and apparently, gave him more uh, more to do in the film. Apparently, he was only going to have like a couple lines before or something like that. Oh, that's I. I <laughs> I, I kind of, I kind of, I, I read that as like you go Harrison Ford for being a really good actor for basically playing a gay man as as uh, not any different from anyone else. Yeah. Like that's a, you know, you go, yeah, no, um, I think Harrison Ford's. I mean, that guy's really going somewhere. That, like that, that guy's really going to have a career, you know, like uh, and, uh, yeah. And I got to say, uh, kudos to him for being menacing without you know just looking old and pointing at people, you know, he, he, in this film, he actually did something. So it was good. He, he actually, like, he's got, like, I mean, it's, it's really kind of one of those where you, you piece it together afterwards. Oh, this is what was really going on. Cause clearly Harrison Ford was showing up and he was like talking to Moran and Moran convinced the uh, Meredith character mm-hmm. to, you know, basically seduce Harry and then, you know, steal the tape or whatever. And, uh, like, like you, you kind of, you kind of piece it together later. You know, or at least for me, yeah. it's, it's not something that like you get it instantly. You know something's going on, and you're kind of in in Harry's headspace with that. Like Harry knows, like there's some shit going on. I don't know what it is, but you know, and uh, it kind of comes from a direction that's it's really obvious that this is what would happen. But at the same time, it's kind of like, well, how do you avoid it on some? Like it, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of you know, I mean, there are things you could have done to avoid it, but he was kind of forced by social nicety to to yeah. allow it to happen. Um, yeah, there's a lot of there's so much great stuff in this movie. Yeah, of course, Robert Duvall is the uh, sort of director who hires out Harry for the job. Eventually, he's uncredited in this, just a cameo part. Um, yeah, he's got like what three lines or something? something you know, like can that. you count your money outside? I think is his most. Yeah. Uh, you know. <laughs> Interesting. The uh, the zoom shots in this film are uh, it was a new technique that was I guess debuted in this film. Uh, automatic zooms uh, that they controlled uh, via sort of like robotic control or whatever. Before that, cameras, uh, movie cameras didn't have that. If if you if you tried to do the zoom uh, for any sort of prolonged amount of time, you would kind of you know as a human operator physically moving the camera, you'd actually lose it apparently. So um, th- these prolonged zooms are sort of this this new technology that they brought in through this film, innovated in this film, I guess. And speaking of the cameras. Uh, if you notice the neat little uh, thing at the end there where the actual camera is starting to swing back and forth, it actually mimics the way a security camera works, right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. No, so, that's true. Yeah. yeah. I, didn't, uh, I didn't think of that until you mentioned it, but yeah, no, that, that makes sense.
All right. Uh, I think a big win-win for that film from both of us. And uh, we can definitely move on now to uh, 1975's Night Moves. I think Harry would like me to leave. I don't think that's necessary. I think Harry thinks it is. Harry thinks if you call him Harry one more time, he's going to make you eat that cat. Gene Hackman. Is Harry Mosby. Hello, Harry. In Night Moves. Well, come on, take a swing at me, Harry, the way Sam Spade would. He's a private investigator. My daughter, Delly. Would you believe Delilah? Well, she's gone. How long gone? Two weeks. Go find her. Making a living. Well, let's say uh, 125 a day in legitimate expenses. From other people's lives. You can get cheaper. Can I get better? You're hired. Making a mess of his own. God, you're really prime, Ellen. You know that? I can't you screwing another guy and you attack my lifestyle? Your lifestyle has nothing to do with it. Night moves. It's a mystery. I'm looking for Deli Grasner. Deli isn't around here anymore. Where the suspects are also the victims. I want to know what I walked into. Ask your wife. Well, are we going to talk about it? Well, sure, ball run with it. Where the questions. All right, what's it all about, Mosby? Is there still much uh, smuggling going on around here? The dogs have fleas. Where were you when Kennedy got shot? Have too many answers. <laughs> Where every clue is a lie. I've been listening to ping pong talk long enough. What was in Marv Elman's plane? Drugs? Was it drugs? Night moves. Check. Check. Ah, oh, it's a beauty. It's a game where every player is a pawn. Harry Mosby, isn't it? Every move is a wrong one. <laughs> and the winner loses everything. I want to know what it's all about. I told you what it's all about. You, what the hell are you all about? You're asking the wrong question. Gene Hackman in Night Moves. Directed by Arthur Penn, who is, of course, famous for Bonnie and Clyde and Little Big Man. Written by Alan Sharp, starring Gene Hackman as another Harry. This time he's Harry Mosby. Jennifer Warren as Paula. Edward Binns as Joey Ziegler. Harris Eulin as Marty Heller. Kenneth Mars as Nick. Janet Ward as Arlene Iverson. A very young James Woods as Quentin. Uh, Anthony Costello as Marv Elman. John Crawford as Tom Iverson. And a debuting, at least credited, first credited role for Melanie Griffith, 17 or 16 or 17 year old Melanie Griffith at the time, as Delilah Deli Grasner. And uh, if you want to give a little synopsis there, Daniel. Sure. I kind of want to do this in uh, in a world. Uh, I kinda, <laughs> whenever, whenever I'm uh, whenever I uh, like, oh yeah, I come to you, yo. In a world where <laughs> sex is given away for money. No. Um. So, uh, Harry Mosby, uh, playing by Gene Hackman, is a uh, private detective. He's a private dick who uh, doesn't doesn't go in for all this newfangled technology, computerized stuff. Uh, despite the fact that uh, his wife uh, manages to get most of the information he needs for this case uh, for him um, through the uh, through the computers that he so despises, 
Um, this should tell you a whole lot about Harry Mosby as a character. Mosby is uh, he's a man who's independent. He's a uh, kind of former uh, football star, a mm-hmm. um, little bit of a meathead, uh, but he uh, feels like he has this code of honor. He feels like he has this, uh, you know, I'm a private eye. I'm uh, independent. I'm a detective. Uh, he uh, gets a case where he is uh, going to have to uh, track down this young girl who has run away from home. I tracks this girl down through um, uh, basically a, a couple of stuntmen, Hollywood stuntmen, who are doing some pretty cool little stunts. Um, one yeah. of which is uh, Quentin uh, James Woods in, uh, in an early role. He eventually tracks down this uh, this young girl, uh, Deli, who uh, was named Delilah because her father apparently always wanted to make a sword and sandal yeah. fit, <laughs> uh, which you know really dates. I mean, the the the, the old Hollywoodness of some of this film, I think, where I'm definitely going to want to talk about here yeah. in a minute. He tracks down this young girl in uh, Florida, where she is uh, being um, uh, kind of kept by her stepfather and his uh, young, uh, kind of beautiful uh, girlfriend. He tries to convince Adele to come back to Los Angeles with him. He, they end up, they kind of go out on the water. They find a uh, dead body, and um, shit ensues from there. Uh, Deli does end up coming back to uh, uh, California, and uh, in the end, uh, it turns out the case that Harry was working on was not the case he thought it was working on. And mm-hmm. uh, I think, uh, I think, really explaining more about the plot would would kind of be superfluous at this point. So uh, yeah. Yeah, this. Uh, I think the one thing I, I didn't mention is that uh, Delhi is a uh, a young girl. She's uh, sixteen, seventeen. She's the character is supposed to be sixteen, but I think Griffith was seventeen at the yeah, time. But for uh, sure. definitely that budding sexuality thing. And she's a, she's a woman who, or a girl really, who is uh, using her sexuality and, and to to manipulate a lot of the people around her. And uh, that's an important element of the film that I, I missed on that that kind of brief synopsis. But uh, I think we'll talk about that here momentarily yeah i didn't even think about it at the time when we first decided to do these two films together but there's actually a lot of connections between these two films outside of it both of them starring gene hackman both both of these characters that gene hackman plays and and here just it's just a testament to what a great actor he is where he basically plays a character who on the outside looks night and day from harry call like he's just a totally different character altogether in a certain respect but both of these guys are kind of really connected at a certain level where both of them are really bad at, at certain things in their life. Like where Harry Call is really bad at keeping his privacy. Gene Hackman's a really bad detective. Like he, he well, had, <laughs> yeah, we're going to, we're going to, I mean, that, that, and that's the, like, you don't realize that at first. I mean, you know, it is, mm-hmm. uh, it, it is this sort of, um, <laughs> he's a plotter is what yeah. he is. You know, it's not, it's not that he's terrible. It's that he thinks he's it's it's Dunning Kruger syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. The, uh, the sense of uh, where where basically the uh, you know half of all drivers think they're above average, you know, like that. But that uh, people who are actually really good drivers uh, tend to underrate their their skills, but people who are really bad tend to overrate their skills, and that covers across huge amounts of uh, you know things, including. Uh, podcast about movies so uh, i think yeah. i'm a i'm a brilliant uh discusser of, of movies on podcasts i think i'm one of the best in the world really and uh harry mosby thinks he's uh he's a very good detective he thinks he's uh he's a man who's uh kind of the spinning image of a, of a marlowe or a, a sam spade and um uh, well i only think i'm an average podcaster so where does that really put me <laughs> well you may have an accurate 
impression of your of your podcasting abilities, uh, which is which is kind of where a lot of people land. But uh, you know, or you may be you may be actually really low, and you only think you're about average. But I think most people who think they're average are are about average. And I I, I was joking. I think I'm I'm you know, okay at, at this, but you know, I still uh, like you, Daniel. I like I like you too, we, man. We're just this is this is a love fest between you and I. You know? Should we should we turn the microphones off and uh, you know have some private time? Is that kind of where we're landing? No, they can they can listen. <laughs> yeah, well, you know Gene Hackman's character, uh, Harry Mosby, would not uh, would not approve. Uh, no, he is uh, he's a uh, conversation we just had. You know, he is he's a, a he's a he's a righteous homophobe in this film. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna, you know, I mean, he 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 definitely throws the faggot word out there uh, at least a couple of times. Yes, uh, you know, he makes fun of uh, Romer films or whatever. Yeah. Uh, from what I is understand. it about a homosexual relationship? I, I think it is. I think it is. Uh, I, I actually, it's, uh, it's one night at mods. I, I looked it up. I didn't get a chance to watch it before uh, recording, but it's it's on my. I mean, I have it like available to watch, so I'm probably gonna try to watch that before next week. So I, I at least I, I I know there's an infidelity angle to there, it. There's definitely an infidelity angle. I mean, it's it's definitely intended by Penn. Um, Penn was a huge Romer fan, so to a certain degree, like the film's most famous line is is him uh, kind of uh, you know. Uh, it's really him. It's not him making fun of, of Romer. It's him making fun of his own characters and making mm-hmm. fun of Mosby. It's him pointing out like, this is how like incurious and stupid Mosby is and that he thinks, you know, Romer films are, are like watching paint dry. I mean, that's such a, I mean, Romer's films are, are if you know anything about Romer, I mean, he's such a uh, filmmaker uh, dedicated to uh, kind of a subtle character studies and subtle, like kind of moral ambiguities and, and this kind of like existential kind of questions. And the fact that, that uh, Mosby just has no interest in that tells you really all you need to know about Mosby at the mm. beginning. Um, another element that I, that I overlooked in, in my kind of initial summary is that, um, you know, Mosby's wife is cheating on him with this, uh, with this man who is uh, stereotypically kind of, kind of in this kind of traditionally constructed way, less of a man than, than Mosby. Mm. You know, he, he walks with a limp. He has a cane. He, uh, you know, isn't, isn't as, is, is virile. And, and, uh, Mosby thinks, well, you're clearly not, a, not the right man for, for my wife, you know, if, uh, if you're if you're not as as capable as me, if you're not as virile as me, but that's really Mosby's downfall in a lot of ways. I mean that that's I mean, you know, I'm not someone who is ever any good at sports or anything like that. So I'm I'm just gonna say this out loud. You know, he's he's a nice football player. He's a meathead. Like he's a jock. Like this isn't this is some guy with like this like deep and subtle grasp of like human psychology. This is a guy who you know kind of kind of wanted to be a tough guy and kind of got a job as a private detective so he could go be a tough guy and, and feel like a man. And he's mm-hmm. definitely compensating for something. You know? Yeah, well, well, I mean, they do make a point of the relationship between him and his wife, where she basically makes allusions to, you know, there's I'm with you because I know there's something else there in your life like there you are deeper on some level you know not necessarily when it comes to doing his job all that well but there there is some sort of buried thing in there that she's been trying to get him to open up about for the longest time and he hasn't and that's kind of what's pushed her away uh, from him at the opening of the film to a certain degree i think that she almost like accepts his uh private detective agency as almost like a hobby that keeps him out of the house like Mm -hmm. more so like it doesn't feel like you know, she's really the one making the money. You yeah, know? and he's he's making a little bit of money, but it's not like I mean, you know, it's not like he's he's really bringing home the bacon sort of thing. And uh, you know, I don't have. I mean, I, I think that's a 
if that's a, if that's the relationship that they have, I don't I don't think that that's a negative thing towards towards either one of them. But I think that you know Mosby can't admit to himself that he's not like like that. This is just almost kind of a hobby that he's that he's yeah. keeping himself busy with. And well, he has he this, thinks he's really like doing good in the world, and yeah, he's not he, like he's. He, well, he has this really romantic version of what his job is. I mean, he, he definitely sees himself, like you said, he sees himself as the Sam Spade of old or whatever. When at this point, detective agencies are becoming conglomerated, computerized enterprises where uh, they, they send you like a, a, an audio tape of all the information you need on the person you're hunting down and all this other stuff. And he, he resents that and rejects it. Uh, although deep down he knows he's a joke and he knows that his job is for the most part. And this film kind of makes a point of it that detectives really aren't glamorous at all. Probably never really were. It's a lot of sitting in your car, taking photographs or waiting for people to show up to certain places. Like he, he makes a point of, uh, in one of his conversations with Paula, you know, they were, they're talking about like, where were you when, uh, the Kennedys were assassinated or whatever, right? And he's yeah. like, I was sitting in my car waiting for this cheating husband to come home with his girlfriend or something like that. And, yeah. you know, it's just you know, just the banality of it all. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's like 90% of a, of, a, of a, like, private detective's life is like you're literally just sitting and waiting for somebody to come out of a room mm-hmm. so you can take photograph or whatever like and that's and that's your life like that's you know it's not really dissimilar from a harry calls life yeah you know in that regard i mean you're he's sitting in a van and just waiting for people to have a conversation so he can you know and you know mosby isn't nearly as good at his job as call is <laughs> it is but uh you know th- there are very different like similarities between these two characters and in, in, uh thematic uh connections it's interesting um, that uh, that's, that stunt work is such a, a kind of an underlying theme with this film because stunt work is another kind of like you put your uh, your body on the line, you know, you basically to be a stunt man. I mean, again, not to uh, denigrate the the stunt profession, but you know, this is a profession built on uh, a bunch of uh, men and women who are basically just willing to uh, risk their their lives mm-hmm. and their their uh, bodies. I mean, there are like there are technical skills involved in you know, this sort of thing, but I mean, you know, it's it's basically <laughs> you've got to be dumb enough to throw yourself off a roof, you know, like that's <laughs> that's kind of what being a stuntman is, you know. Harry thinks it's it's kind of romantic and exciting, and at one point he's even like trying to get, hey, can you give me some stunt work? I'd love to love to get in on this, and it speaks so much to his, you know, that, that this dude in his forties is like, yeah, I'd love to like do some stunt work, and it's like, dude, like you're. So not like you know, yeah. gonna be I mean, this guy, you know. I mean, you know, you're in shape and all, but you, you're not cut out for this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I really like that this film is um, very much like uh, the Long Goodbye to a certain degree. It's it's kind of a really existentialist uh, sort of detective film or existentialist, I should say. It's not about the plot at all because if you actually focus on this film, and I've watched this film several times, so I have actually picked up certain key things that. You're you're really not supposed to pick up on the first viewing, but even it's really then, built for like the second, third, fourth viewing, like it's and but even then, the whole point of the film is not the plot at all. Much like the long good- goodbye, it's not the plot; it's how the plot affects the character, the central character. And again, like in the converse in the conversation, you're following uh, Harry's point of view. You're, you're 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 following him. You're seeing how he interprets things, and so. When he misses something, you're almost pre-programmed to miss it as well. And he misses everything. Like, he is going in one direction, and he's missing 
everything is happening around him for the most part. And even then, if you go back and you try to connect the clues in this film, and there are some that sort of vaguely connect, but at the same time, there's a lot of ambiguity in this film. There's still a lot of motivations and uh, plot machinations that have gone on at some point in the past that you don't see in this film that don't make sense, and you can't make any more sense of them than uh, Harry can. Um, you're, you're still left in the same boat as he is, literally, in the end of the film. <laughs> can we, uh, uh, should we... Should we talk a bit about the ending, or should we should we dig into that, or do you want to... Um, I've got some characters I want to talk about as well. Um, mm-hmm. if that's okay, okay, well, yeah, uh, go, go to the characters first. Okay, I really appreciated uh, Jennifer Warren in this film. Mm-hmm. She plays Paula. She is. She was probably my favorite. I mean, on, I, I will. She was probably my favorite character in the film. With no denigrating, which I think this is. This may be Gene Hackman's greatest performance. Uh, I would agree. Um, I think this is a phenomenal performance, and I and I will. I will speak very highly. Uh, I want to speak generally of Gene Hackman when we, uh, before we mm-hmm. before we end off tonight. Um, but uh, Jennifer Warren is phenomenal here as this uh, woman who is uh, kind of accepted her lot in life. I, I mm-hmm. think. Um, you know she's she's literally breeding dolphin dolphins at the beginning of the film to uh, to sell as pets for people. Yeah. You know because rich assholes want dolphins. Want to for keep pets. pets in their pools. Want yeah. to keep pets in their pools. And I mean that's such like this like morally reprehensible thing to do. And that's the world that all of these characters live in. This is mm-hmm. this is a morally um, you know rudderless world. As as we kind of like the the central like the metaphor at the very end is he's literally on a boat that has no rudder. You know, mm-hmm. you know if we're talking about obvious uh, you know visual metaphors, that's definitely the the, the one. Um, but it's so effective here, and and I think that like you get that in, in everybody. You know, we, we kind of have this question of like. What's what? What's right and what's wrong? I don't know. What the fuck? Like, who cares? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, um, but Paula, I think, is a, a basically a good person um, yep. who, who kind of gets uh, in over her head. I think that um, she does have a genuine attraction to, to Harry. I don't. I think there's a mutual attraction. I guess is kind of where where I land. Um, certainly, Harry is attracted to Paula, but I think Paula sees something in Harry that, that she likes, even if she she kind of sees him for for what he is, even more than he does. I think that she. Uh, response to something in his in his kind of wounded nature or something, you mm-hmm. know. And this, I like the relationship. I love that scene that they have together, uh, where uh, he sees uh, um, she asks him where where he was when Kennedy was shot. And uh, you know, this is a film that exists so clearly. Uh, both of these films, but but this one in particular is so much about that kind of uh, cultural malaise and the counterculture that happened after uh, the Kennedys were shot and when Nixon was elected and just the sense of despair that we, that the, 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 the 60s are over and the, uh, the idea that we were going to try to save the world and change the world and make the world a better place. And we failed and Nixon's in charge and now Ford's in charge. And we're just, we're just <laughs> fucked. I mean, and that's, and that's what the, that's what the seventies were. This, this period was for so many people. And, uh, you get that in, um, Deli's mom. Um, you get mm-hmm. that, you know, that sense of kind of the, the glory days are past and, uh, you know, this kind of embracing of her sexuality is is almost a weapon against uh, Harry, you know, and, and this sort of uh, sense of the way that, uh, I mean, really all three of the major female characters are using their sexuality as, as, as a tool and a weapon, as a yeah. way of navigating the world. Because that's all they have at this, that, I mean, that that's, I mean, you can't even blame them. Um, mm-hmm. But but I think Paula is just this really fascinating figure. 
um, in the film and, and really, I mean, beautiful not to, I mean, yeah. let's, let's not, um, let's not overstate especially, that. But, especially when she lets her hair down. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love her in the, uh, in the, in the cap. I, I just, I, I, kinda, <laughs> you know, I was like, man, she's adorable. Like I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I love that, that wounded, um, aging kind of ex hippie kind of thing. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's such a, such a subtle and brilliant performance and she's so, um, watchable. Um, for for oh, me, I she, just I'm I'm drawn to her, you know, uh, this wounded character who who uh, just I I just I really responded to, to her performance, and I wanted to mention that. Yeah, well, the the film does definitely has sort of an undercurrent of everyone sort of has this like troubled past to some degree. I mean, Harry has the whole thing where he was trying to find his uh, father who abandoned him. Mm-hmm. As a child, Paula not so much is disclosed. She she does mention that she's had you know a pretty sort of rough life, like she's gone from job to job and finally found herself here with with uh, Iverson. But yeah, she's she's sort of a really nice contrast to Mosley in in a lot of ways. Like she's she has you know moved on. She's accepted her lot in life. She's fine with who she is. She knows you know I'm in my place and I'm good where I am. And she's. And an adult, she's she's grown up. She has done what Mosley was never able to do and grow up and accept who he is. Uh, so that I think that's probably one of the most interesting things about her. And at the same time, her past still connects with his. She she knows he's yeah. you know troubled in some way, and she sympathizes with him. That's why part partly why they connect so well, and there is that romantic spark there. And I, I always get the feeling that that probably could have gone somewhere. Like he might've ended up staying in Florida if things had changed differently. Right. I mean, there's no, there's no question that there is a a spark there and uh, you know, it doesn't have to be anything more than just a, you know, two kind of lonely souls reaching out to one another. I mean, you know, I I think that, I think that that's enough for what we see. I, I think that those, those kind of languid South Florida, you know, um, nights, you know, these kind of, you know, the mosquitoes are biting and and the humidity is high and, you know, Hey, come and, Come and uh, let's let's have a little companionship through through this, and I and uh, you know I get, I get that. I mean, I, you really get this sense of particularly those sequences in Florida for me. Like you really get this very clear sense of place. I don't even know if that was actually shot in the Florida Keys, but it, it yeah, it's it so evocative. Um, uh, the other the other major um, female are one of the other female characters in the film is, is definitely Melanie Griffith as Deli. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, maybe it's the fact that it's Melanie Griffith. I mean, I, I don't see it. Like I, I look at her and Doesn't I don't look like her. Yeah. It, I mean, it's just, even, even when you think about like, like working girl, you think about like a few years later when our, I guess working girls like 10 years later, yeah, it's uh, 10 years, <laughs> you know, uh, but, but you think of, you think of like her, her later work, even not even like now where she, she's had the plastic surgery and everything, but mm-hmm. I kind of have this image of what Melanie Griffith looks like. And this, this, this is a girl. This is not a woman. This is a girl. You know, it, it would be tempting to say Lolita figure, but it's not that because Lolita was younger, a, 14 or something, 14 right? or something. And was was completely innocent. Was not there was mm-hmm. not a sense of. I mean, and, and Delhi is uh, finding herself and her and what she wants to be in this life, and finding her own freedoms, and uh, is kind of being to some degree manipulated and to some degree kind of abused by the benign neglect. If, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, you know, where, where yeah. her stepfather is uh, 
you know, I mean, he even says like, I, I want to fuck my daughter essentially, you know, uh, yeah. you know, there should be a law. Well, actually there is. Yeah, there is <laughs> that's, a law. That's, that's <laughs> one of my favorite lines. I loved that. that bit. Um, you know, I've known, you know, I've known teenagers like this, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I've known people who uh, didn't exactly know how to navigate this, this kind of sexual awakening and this kind of the way that, that people respond to them all of a sudden feeling like they needed to experiment with that. And, and the real tragedy for this character is that she's just in this place where people are just using her and yep. where, you know, she, she doesn't have the support network that she needs. And that's, and that's a failure of everyone else in this film. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you could, I think Paula does what she can, but it's like, I mean, there is this just like, well, she's, she's going to do her thing. Like she's, she's just wild. She's just gonna. And I don't think that like, they should have like an authoritarian, like, no, you're not allowed to have sex young girl. But I, I think that she really she, needed some guidance, you know? Yeah. She needs, she needs, she needed a parental figure of some sort. And I mean, she even, it's even sort of hinted that that could have been from Mosley in a, in a different world, you know, like, yeah. and, and, but he, he fails her as well. Like he, once he's done with his case and he leaves her back with her uh, mother and the, and the fight that ensues out in the, in the, in the driveway with her mother and Quentin. And, you know, you could tell he f- feels kind of bad about it. Like he's like, ah, oh, I fucked up again. Like I fucked, well, I fucked that up. Most he's more interested in being the hero private detective yeah. than he is in actually figuring out what's going on and actually understanding who these people are. Like he's, I've got a case, I've got this thing, I've got to do it, and doesn't doesn't look any deeper than that. He just he doesn't, and the the signs are there, the clues yep. are are there. I mean, he's being manipulated, um, partly by Paula, but he's it's not just that. It's it's uh, you know, he's allowing himself to 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 miss these things, and I and I think that that's the the central tragedy of the character is just that he he is he's willfully blind to this stuff. Now, obviously, the other major female character is uh, Mosby's wife. Mm-hmm. Who uh, we get a sense of like they do have a, a pretty solid relationship on some yeah. ways. I mean, this is not like a, a the the easy thing to do would be to make this a completely just failed marriage. You know, yeah. um, uh, you know, two people who just despise each other or just completely they try to make it work, and they've even they've even done a. I mean, towards the end, they've actually kind of like they're they're making steps towards like really trying to repair the relationship and. Uh, it, it, at first, I thought the the kind of the marriage, the the, the kind of falling, the crumbling marriage element of it would be a, an even bigger part of the film. But it's man, it's so depressing. I just I, I I watch it and I'm just like you know because I've I've been in you know kind of bad relationships before and in kind of like long term, uh, not a marriage but a long term relationship that was kind of not going a lot long for the world and in kind of like trying to to work stuff out and going through some some terrible shit and. Uh, you know the the feeling of uh, being with somebody who who you love and who loves you, but also at the same time you're just you just can't make it work. Is yeah, I mean it's it's this it's very well drawn here. Um, one of the things I appreciated about both of these films is that these are films for adults. Mm-hmm. This is not you know this is not you know Iron Man swooping in to save the day. I mean these yeah. are films. I mean fundamentally about like this guy's marriage or this guy's loneliness or, or whatever. It's it's a it's it's really about like I, I can't I can't imagine seeing this when I was like nineteen and getting a whole lot out of it. I mean I would have gotten things out of it, but it's such a richer film as an as an adult, you know, kind of scene. Yeah, Hackman's performance in this one of the major things is the infidelity. He he takes this case almost basically to get away from it, just to put it in the back of his mind for a while, and it doesn't really work because I think that's pretty much what's distracting him for the most part. I mean, 
not not that he's he would necessarily pick up on all this even if he was totally focused but his the infidelity and everything is like really sidetracking him and and keeping him unfocused on the case i love the scene where he confronts the uh crippled guy that that she is uh, shacking up with you just see it in his physical performance how shaken he is and the adrenaline flowing like where he's pointing at him and his hand is shaking and he's he's bucking his knee while he's standing and everything i'm like wow that really looks authentically like how a, a guy who is pretending to be tough at that moment but is like really visibly shaken would act and i i just really appreciated that i that was actually that was sort of the one scene that put it over the edge for me to cite this as his best performance over his performance in the conversation. So, well, I think, I mean, not, not to, I mean, it's, you're spoiled for choice tonight. Really? Like, you know, like it's not to say that the conversation is a bad performance, but the conversation is a little bit more, I don't want to say one note, but it's a little bit more kind of one thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas um, night moves has to work and not just, he can't just be kind of a tough guy. He can't just be kind of a weak guy, pretend to be a tough guy. He kind of has to be both depending on, Mm -hmm where you are in the viewing and kind of where you are uh, in terms of your own knowledge of what's going on in the film, because, uh, you know, kind of rewatching bits of it, you know, you know, the second time you get totally different things out of his performance than you did kind of the, the first go through and, and uh, different elements that he's, that he's able to, to bring to the forefront. So it's a really complicated and nuanced performance, I guess is kind of, kind of where I land. Yeah. Just focusing for a brief moment on the, uh on James Woods uh, character. He, he basically just got a bit part here as Quentin. And um I always think his last name is Tarantino. Um, <laughs> like, you know, like in an alternate universe it's like like he goes on and he like he makes movies uh, about like this crazy case although he dies in the film but you know. Like, yeah. Um uh, uh fished Quentin Tarantino's body out of the dolphin pen. And, uh, yeah. But uh, I, I found it interesting, like, one of the central things here that Harry doesn't pick up on until the very last of the film is that several of these people are involved in a smuggling operation. And basically the whole the whole key to this is that uh, they're, they're smuggling artifacts out of Mexico, which was uh, definitely a big thing back in that day. That was definitely a criminal enterprise. Probably still happens. Um, oh, I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, but the film, like I said before, it, it doesn't piece everything together for you. It never quite pieces together how connected some of these people are or who did what. It makes allusions to the idea that maybe Quentin has killed a couple of people in this film. I don't think he has. I think he's totally innocent. He's like probably the most innocent character in this film. To I, I was going to say, I think I think Quentin is Quentin's really the most moral character in the film. Like yeah. he, I think he gets kind of his place. In, in this kind of hierarchy, he kind of understands there are forces that are beyond his control, and he was kind of happy to, to fuck Delhi for a while, and then, you know, once he's kind of, you know, once he's kind of moved on, he's like, I'm, I'm just going to do my job. I mean, he's he's a red herring. I mean, I, I love the, the moment where Mosby kind of watches the, uh, the footage that they shot, mm-hmm. and he sees, oh, Quentin was down there. He was, he was, uh, he was fucking with the, uh, the thing. What is the, uh, he, he set some, he set some trap, and it's like, no, I don't think I don't think any. I think Quentin was completely blameless in this. Yeah. And I I haven't gone through with like a notepad and like taking notes on exactly what uh, what was going on. And maybe I could be convinced that Quentin maybe was was a part of this. But I, I think I don't think he had anything to do with it. I think he was caught up well, in it. And I think he just um, I think he genuinely cared for Delhi too. Yeah. I think that's, that's his that's his flaw. He, he cared for Delhi and uh, 
And Delhi was was I think blameless. I don't think Delhi was doing anything. I, I mean, she's just a young girl. She's just, and then she ends up getting killed because she happened to find this body. Like, by well, I'm not even I'm not even convinced she was killed because of uh, she, that she knew too much. I'm kind of thinking even that was just a coincidence. You think I, it might have been an accident? I think there's actually a couple of major coincidence coincidental accidents in this. Um, the plane with the body in it, I believe that was a coincidence as well. I don't think it was a sabotage. I, I don't oh, you think... think... You think the guy just, like, he, he just uh, flew wrong? I mean, he just he yeah. just made a mistake and he just died? See, yeah. I was I kind of thought maybe he was bringing in material, like he was bringing in part of the artifact or something. Well, he, he his yeah. his plane has the, the big artifact that they float to the top at the end of the film, right? Right, right. And I... I think that uh, the film leads you to believe that mi- there has to be a connection because you go to, into that mindset of, oh yeah, it's a it's a detective film. All these little angles have to connect at the end at some point. And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, you know what? No, I think I think a lot of this stuff was just coincidence. And because Mosley is in that Sam Spade mindset, right. he he has to believe that there's connections here when there really isn't. And I think that just adds to the part of confusion. Again, you're following his point of view. You start to buy into what he's buying into. And I think the film's brilliant in that way. You know, I, I, I can buy that. I, I would, I'd want to kind of sit down and again, look at it again, maybe Mm -hmm. with a pad of paper and like start taking notes and and see it. But, but I, I mean, that misses the point of the film, you know, really like, because the point of the film is the kind of confusion, but I, I feel like there is a way to put it together. I, I but I, but I think what it, I think what we're putting our finger on without meaning to is, uh, I've been following a little bit of like true crime stuff lately, just in mm-hmm. you know some podcasts and stuff. And my uh, kind of not talking about movies on this podcast life. <laughs> um, you know, there is this kind of element to a lot of that to where like you don't know how the pieces fit together because you don't have enough information because it's a real thing. And so it's like, well, this person gave this statement to the police at this time. And like, was that person lying or was that person telling the truth? And ultimately you're, you're talking about probabilities. What's the most probable option and is the most probable option really the the right option? You know, was there this crazy thing that happened to happen? And uh, I think that like piling up the, the coincidences and night moves, you know, kind of, you start to go like, yeah, that, that feels, uh, and, you know, I can buy that the pilot crashed without there being any kind of overt sabotage. It seems like a really big coincidence that uh, the boat that, that uh, Paula just happened to stop the boat right there where the plane was downed, you know, sort well, of she, thing. Well, I, I think they I think they might have knew. I think I think Iverson suspected where it was or perhaps knew where it crashed. And okay. Got them out out there to to find it, um, okay. and just confuse uh, Mosley even more. I that think would make, that would make sense. Yeah. Um. So then, uh, I yeah, I can buy that. I, I think yeah. for me, like, I can buy that the that the plane crash was a real thing. That that was just a plane crash. But I think that uh, Delhi was probably actually killed, like intentionally. Well, um, just because I think once she saw the body, like in in the, like I think they just thought she's not going to be quiet. And so, well, just just but just think about who was in that plane at the end that's sinking down when he's looking through the window. Right. I, yeah. I, 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 the only I have a hard time buying that because of who that person is in the, in that plane. Like when you think about that person's connection to Delhi, right? Uh, and 
connection to like where he was when she died. I don't I don't want to give that part away. I think that's what that's something people need to see for themselves in the film if they sure. haven't seen it, so I'm trying to skirt around it. I can't, believe, I can't believe this is the thing we're like avoiding spoilers on, but like <laughs> I, I, I buy that. I am okay yeah. with that. I mean, um you know, I I don't want to start digging into the debate on that. I mean I, I think you can um <laughs> we've probably gone further than we really even yeah, need yeah, to. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, it's a brilliant film. Um mm-hmm. and uh it's it's one that like I I I kind of had the ideal viewing experience on this because I watched it without knowing anything mm-hmm. about it. I I had actually read reviews of it. I know uh, Roger Ebert did not only an, an original review in '74, but in the uh, early 2000s he did a, a great movies yeah. review of it. Um, and I had actually read both before I uh, watched the film, but I'd forgotten it. Like I did I didn't yeah. remember. You know, so I went into this clean, and so I was like, oh, kind of detective film, Gene Hackman, yeah, yeah, I'm down, like, cool, like, it'll be, like, another Popeye Doyle a little bit, you know, <laughs> you know like, like, that's kind of the approach I took to this, yeah. um, and then it kind of becomes character study, and I'm like, oh, yeah, kind of a nifty, like, character study, but a guy uh, and his wife is cheating on him, and he's uh, doing this case, and it's kind of a, a Marlowe pastiche, okay, yeah, I'm down, like, I'm, I'm kind of, like, I'm definitely interested and then in the last 20 minutes it just becomes something like it just it totally transforms and that's uh one of the great experiences like the the best way to experience this film other than seeing it on the big screen i wish i had had that opportunity mm-hmm. but you know i say this at the end now that we've uh, spoiled like so much about this film um, <laughs> if you haven't seen this film uh go <laughs> watch it yeah. right now um it's brilliant and know nothing about it so you know uh, yeah um this like the conversation or they're pretty widely available on dvds uh i think i neglected to even look up the dvd and stuff uh info for these ones do i was doing all these other notes of all these brilliant things i discovered in these fucking films and then i forgot to do that but i i I do love the uh sort of jazz scores in both of these like i'm not even a jazz guy but there's these nice little subtle jazz uh things going on in both these films uh the conversation especially has got this like really sad kind of lonely piano jazz thing going on for the most part so i I like that the uh, michael small score for uh uh, night moves is uh, apparently it was lost like the master tapes were lost so it doesn't really exist as a put together score from what i can gather uh, by the way, Night Moves, you can buy it for $5 on Amazon uh, from the DVD. Um, right or you can, I think, rent it for $2 if you want to stream it, if you uh, can't uh, you know, find it through some other method. And uh, it, it's worth your 2 bucks. I'll just <laughs> leave it at that. You know? Yeah. I mean, if, if you, these are definitely films to own. So, yeah, I guess we, we could probably go on and on, but let's, let's cut it off there. Daniel, tell us uh, about your Doctor Who podcast. Uh, absolutely. Well, I do have a Doctor Who podcast. It's called Oi Spaceman, a Doctor Who love story. You can find it at Oi Spaceman. That's Oi Spaceman, all in word, dot Libsyn dot com. I do it with my wife. We do classic and new series. And um, there is significantly less Melanie Griffith nudity in, uh, in, in <laughs> Doctor Who. But um, it's worth watching anyway. Um, if you're a, a Doctor Who nerd, uh, go check us out. And I, I can't believe I can't I I keep I'm going to keep saying it. I can't imagine anybody would listen be on episode 53 of this podcast and not know about Always Spaceman. But maybe this is the first time listener. We get some new people and uh, didn't, didn't know about Always Spaceman. So go yeah, check well, it out. well, uh, new new t- new listeners always go for the latest one. So yeah. you know. no, I'm down for that. I'm just I'm just saying like it, it does seem like you know oh yeah sure. 
I, I get the feeling like uh, the audience just skips over that little bit where I say that every week. <laughs> uh, so you can leave your questions and comments. I, I realize I have to redo the uh, end uh, trailer yet again now that we have a Facebook group. Uh, thanks, yeah. uh, Mr. Balk, yet again for making complications in my life. If that Facebook group fails, I'm going to totally blame you, by the way, Stuart. But yeah, Facebook, iTunes, our Podbean site, all those different places you'll hear where you can go and send us questions and comments and ideas for movies to review and uh until then thank you everyone for listening and thank you for joining me daniel and we'll catch you guys next time good time thanks a lot cheers Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. To see the host's other stuff, as well as links to websites and podcasts of similar interest, and as well to leave comments, questions, movie requests, and other suggestions, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. From there, you can also find us on iTunes. You got this, man. You got this by the ass.